Good evening, and thank you again for coming out this evening. Ripon, if you could change over to the laptop, please. Thank you. This evening, we're looking at the topic of Stay Awake and a series on what the future holds. And tonight, we're looking specifically at our glorious future. As Gareth mentioned, we're going to be commencing in the home groups a study in the book of Revelation, and so therefore this study over the next three weeks will set some of the background to the study in the book of Revelation. Revelation is the first book, uh, the first words of the book are, and we translate them as Revelation, it begins with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. First of all, it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it's what God has made known. And thirdly, it is about what must soon take place. The other thing, whenever we study the book of Revelation, uniquely it tells us that blessed is he who reads and those who read the words of the prophecy and heed the signs and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. It is one of the unique books in the Bible in which there is a blessing in actually reading it and listening to what it has to say. Many people are terrified of the book of Revelation. Nancy Guthrie, who many of you know, gives four common fears as to why we have this fear when we approach the book of Revelation. She says, we fear that we're not going to understand it. Tick, we all agree with that. Two, we're scared of the controversy that surrounds the book. Yep. We are as worried about the persecution it potentially tells us to expect, okay? And it's full of terms like judgment and wrath and not very attractive. And all of those points are absolutely right. And when you consider that, for example, some of these words or most of these words occur in the book and are alien to our common conversation and even our understanding, it makes it difficult to understand. But whenever you add to it all of these various theological terms, it becomes a minefield. And one of the reasons why we don't preach on the book of Revelation as we ought to, or even on the second coming, is because of this slide. Because as soon as somebody steps up here to take the platform, everybody will be thinking, now what is he? Is he an amillennialist? Is he a post-millennialist? Is he a pre-tribulationist? Don't worry if you understand the words or not, because the people who are trying to put labels on them probably don't understand them either, because I certainly don't. But what we need to understand is that the second coming is not there for us to debate. It's not given to us to have a lovely academic exercise. It's not there to make us go through all of these terms and ter uh, technical terms and, and try to order them. The second coming is there to encourage us, and that is what I want to talk to you specifically about tonight. But the very book of Revelation is also a very dangerous book. It has been very dangerous throughout history. Some people have latched on to it and some phrases within it or something within it and come up with quite outrageous ideas. In 1530, if you go to today, if you go to the city of Munster in Germany, in 1530, 
three cages were hung up on the spire, equivalent to the height of the crescent, if not even higher. And inside those three cages were put the bodies of three men. And they rotted in those cages for 50 years until there was nothing left on them. Why? Because the men who were in those cages were executed because they read the book of Revelation and they decided that they were going to set up the millennial kingdom in the city of Munster. They then imposed their law, their regulations, and it was tyrannical to the point that they were overthrown and executed. And so as they tried to establish God's millennial kingdom in the city of Munster, after reading what they considered to be the truth in the book of Revelation, they made a mess. And I want you to bear that in mind as we come towards the end of our topic of conversation tonight. So what is Revelation about? What does it actually reveal? And the key to understanding the book of Revelation lies in the phrase, then I saw. I don't expect you to be able to pick up all of these as they go through, but if you notice that every time you read the words, then I saw in the book of Revelation, you're looking at a new period of time, a new chronological event. Right throughout the whole of the book, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. And so therefore, the key to understanding this book is in that phrase, then I saw. And whenever you put all of that chronology together and you look at the book of Revelation, you find that you have these six main phases regarding things that are to take place. We have the letters to the churches in the first three chapters, and then we have things which are to take place. Worship before God, chapter 4, the great tribulation, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, and the eternal state. You'll be pleased to hear that we have no intention of covering all of those tonight. And here's the first of the charts that you're going to see. The chart is going to be developed over the, term, over the three weeks, and I hope to clarify, in line with the book of Revelation, what the end time is. And so therefore, let's consider what we're going, the topic tonight. And I'm going to start in a very unique place. I'm going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, that well-known passage that you could all quote from Christmas. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And you might think I have lost a plot. Well, possibly, but today is Epiphany, or Friday was Epiphany, and that it celebrates in many parts of the world the Christmas message. But I want you to consider what it says here in this prophecy of Isaiah. It says, the people who walked in darkness. Isaiah was talking to people who were in extreme darkness. First of all, if you look at the end of chapter 8, you'll find that they were turning to mediums and spirits and things like that to try to get spiritual satisfaction. But also, they were in danger of being overrun by the Assyrians. And this was to take place in a very short period of time. The people were in darkness. And so therefore, like those people, we find ourselves today walking in darkness. I'm reminded of Snoopy. I'm sure you all know who Snoopy is. And Lucy. 
If you don't, well, hard luck. I could have put up a graphic. But Snoopy sitting on top of his kennel on his typewriter. And he starts a novel. It was a dark and stormy night. And Lucy comes up to him and says, Snoopy, you can't start a new novel with it was a dark and stormy night. You start a novel with once upon a time. So Snoopy writes, once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night. It was a dark and stormy night. They say that the past two to three years which we have passed are probably the darkest since the Second World War. We as a country, as a nation, as a world, are in darkness, walking in darkness. A Pulitzer Prize winner, a gentleman by the name Ernie Pyle, was he was in Okinawa at the end of the Second World War. And at the end of the Second World War, he found himself seeing horror like he had never seen before. And he wrote these words, if you have any light, shine it in my direction. God knows that I am out of light. Is that the world in which you live? Is that the world in which I live? God knows I'm out of light. Well, I want to move from that darkness to they have seen a great light. And this brings us back to the Christmas message. The people have seen a great light. On them a light has shone. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For unto us a child is born. Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ, was prophesying the birth of the baby. And all eyes have been focused and are focused this weekend on the baby. My daughter asked her three boys to set up the nativity scene for her while she was busy get, getting ready for Christmas. And whenever they had gone to bed, she went over to tidy it up and to look at it, thinking that's not what the nativity scene should look like. But when she looked at it, she was amazed. These three young lads, three boys, had put the child into the center and every figure around the outside looking at it. And that is what the message is about. A baby that was born. I'm going to ask for that chorus, O Holy Night, be sung for us. Thank you, Amy and Gareth. Have I got control back, Ruben? We read, we sang there, so led by a star sweetly gleaming, here came the wise men from the Orient land, Epiphany Sunday. But I want you to move on and just highlight some of those words. The King of Kings, behold your King. And in particular, in the third verse, we read these words His law is love, His gospel is peace. Chains He will break, the slave is our brother. All oppression shall cease. O oh, praise His holy name forever. 
His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. Yes, spiritually and from a spiritual side, we can say that as Christians, we know the Lord Jesus Christ in this way. But what has happened here within this short little hymn, chorus, we have two advents of Christ, His incarnation and the second coming. They're brought together in that one carol. Jesus' first advent and that which points to His second advent when He will come to establish His global kingdom. And that is what Isaiah does. He brought together the two advents, a prophetic skip or gap occurs within them. And so, therefore, the first announces Jesus' first advent, and that points then to the second advent when he comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. You see, whenever you're looking at prophecy, you've got to remember two things. One, the accuracy of Isaiah's prophecies regarding the incarnation. But secondly, the fact that even within the carols we sing and the passages we read, there is a gap, and a gap of many thousands of years. So, the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? We've all dreamed of a utopia. We've all dreamed of a great society, paradise on earth, a return to the Garden of Eden. They believed that in whenever they tried to establish that committee, that commune, that city of Munster. And Christians all agree, universally, that in the end, Jesus will reign over the earth as king and establish a great society, paradise to on earth, and if you like, a paradise like the Garden of Eden. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He will reign over a glorious kingdom known in the Bible as the millennium. But before this, He will return to earth, literally, physically, visibly, and gloriously as the judge of the whole earth. And that's what we're going to be looking at over these incoming three weeks. So, we now go into the book of Revelation, and we go right to the most complex and the most difficult part, and we'll start there, and that's Revelation chapter 20. Let me read it to you. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such a second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Did you notice I highlighted the thousand years? Six times in that passage it is repeated, a thousand-year reign. And this is repeated right throughout Scripture. We find it in the Old Testament, which refers to the rule of Christ. I can only take a moment to highlight some of them, but just look at the red, those words which in the Old Testament refer to the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, the passage we're thinking, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. And in the New Testament, again, repeatedly, time and time and time again, we read about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back again to reign here on earth. I know that was a controversial statement to make in some areas, but that is what I believe. It says, and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so, we then move into trying to decipher what Revelation 20 is about. Biblical scholars have tried to decipher it over generations, and you get presented with these wonderful charts that we struggle to understand. But basically, we need to understand the millennium before we try to build up the passage. There has three terms, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And if you look at it very simply, this is what we all agree on. That's it. That the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world, died, returned to heaven, that he is coming back again to judge the earth, and that we will enter into eternity where he will be king. But there are other major things that have to be put in, major building blocks that need to be put in place. They are referred to, and that's where the debate and the discussion takes place. You have, for example, postmillennialism. This one is only held by a minority. It came out in the late 1800s, late 1700s, 1800s, and it said that the world would gradually improve and become a utopia and Christ would return. But the First and Second World War kind of blew that one out of the water. And then you have what are called the amillennialist point of view, and this is held by a significant number of Christians across the world. And the amillennialist point of view that they believe there is no actual reign of Christ on earth, but the thousand years is symbolic, and that is on, it is a symbolic time unto his triumphant return. This would mean that they, we are living in the millennium now. And then there is the ones who believe in premillennial. And premillennial believe that Christ returns to earth and that he will literally establish his kingdom on earth and physically rule for a thousand years. 
Think about that for a moment. That Christ will physically rule on this earth for a period of a thousand years. And we refer back to the Old Testament. We looked into the Old New Testament, and there repeatedly, time and time and time again, we have laid out for us that Christ will reign. Now, I know that some of you will, in this congregation will be amillennialists, and then there'll be some who are premillennialists. And I have no intention of falling out with you. But the fact of the matter is that what we all agree on, whether you're premillennialist or amillennialist, is that Jesus Christ will return to rule on planet Earth, whether it's a new Earth or what we have today. And so, therefore, what is it going to be like whenever He returns? Isaiah goes on, He will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to contrast that with those who try to establish that millennial kingdom in the city of Munster in Germany. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The exact opposite occurred when man tried to establish a millennial kingdom or what they thought was a millennial kingdom. But this tells us how the Lord Jesus Christ will reign, that He will be that wonderful counselor. Wonderful means incomprehensible. Whenever the angel came in the Old Testament in Jude, in Judges, whenever the old angel came, he said, my name is wonderful. You cannot comprehend it. It is beyond our comprehension. And counselor is not a counselor like you and I would attend to go and get counseling. Because you know what? They don't know what's wrong with you. They are to ask you what's wrong with you. But counselor here is actually one who is in total control, one who is a planner, one who is formulating, one who can guide his people. And he is a wonderful counselor, one who is in total control and knows and possesses knowledge about you and me individually. He is the mighty God. This is a statement of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, full power and omnipotence, the one who is in total and absolute control. The everlasting Father, this one causes a wee bit of confusion. It doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is the everlasting Father as in the Trinity, because that just doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. But the preferred meaning is that He is an everlasting Father. Like a father, He protects and watches over you. And finally, the Prince of Peace. Not speaking of personal peace, but peace that puts an end to famine and war and corruption and government and dictators. Peace on earth. And so there is a kingdom coming a millennial kingdom coming, a real physical kingdom coming. And that kingdom will last for a period of a thousand years. And Jesus Christ will restore and rule here on earth. You know, it's not a case that we're going to heaven. And I'll explain that if I get a chance later. We are going to rule. 
we're going to rule with Christ. And so what will that millennial kingdom look like? Time doesn't allow us to go into all of these. Peace, glory, justice, knowledge, joy, holiness, health, righteousness, worship. I've just selected some words from Old Testament passages which describe for us what the millennial kingdom will be like. And so we have this period of a thousand years when Jesus Christ will reign here on earth and we will reign with him. And for that period of a thousand years, he is in total control. And it will be, if you like, a rebirth, an improvement of the Garden of Eden from the very beginning and from the book of Genesis. A utopia? Man tried to establish it in Munster and failed. Peace? We need it. We have counsel, guidance, and the love of one as a father. And as Christians, we live for a look forward to that 1,000-year period. But, but, there's a twist. Because, you see, the Bible tells us that at the end of those 1,000 years, after Satan has been locked up, as we read in the book of Revelation, for a 1,000 years, he will be released. And even released, and even those who were within the millennial kingdom will join forces to attack and to try to overthrow it. This causes us confusion. You say, why? Why on earth will Satan be released? Why will God release him and will allow him to go out and to deceive the nations? You see, when Satan is released at the end of the thousand years and defeated, it will provide us with the ideal conditions. Sin will be eradicated. Everything will be gone. And we will move into a total period of eternity. Because after the millennium, we have the great white throne judgment, which we'll talk about next week. A new heaven and a new earth, which we'll talk about in the third week. And it means eternity will beginning with every aspect of sin removed. Just like in the Garden of Eden, man had a choice. In the millennial kingdom, man has a choice. A man's evil nature will still manifest itself when Satan is released, and it is completely and totally eradicated. And in the end, God is in control. And so when we come to the book of Revelation, we pick up and it deals with, very briefly, the coming of the Lord Jesus. We'll deal with that a bit more in detail. The millennium, we've touched on it, and I it's a broad stroke and we've touched on the great white throne judgment. So what does that look like in the book of Revelation? First of all, we have Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. Then we have the great white throne judgment after the millennium and the defeated rebellion of Satan. And then we move into an eternity after a new heaven and a new earth. I realize it's been a broad stroke and complex, 
but it's just to get you started because there's a lot more detail will be filled in in the weeks which are to come.